Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Great episode this week. It's a live one. Uh, We recorded this live. We rarely do that. Uh, It's all about the issue of compassion. Sounds like a really sappy idea, something something out of an after-school special, but it's actually a life skill par excellence. It is um, the science suggests that compassion can make you happier, healthier, and more successful. So don't dismiss it. I often did uh, to my detriment. And it was taped the day after the shooting. This episode was taped the day after the shooting at uh, the school in Parkland, Florida. So some added poignancy there. We'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, the guest is Thubton Jinpa. Uh, I'll tell you about him and tell you more about the episode coming up. But uh, let's start with your voicemails. Here's number one. Hi, Dan. My name is Charlotte, uh, and I happily just celebrated my 75th birthday. I've been meditating uh, in large part because of your book and what you say uh, for the last few years. I found it very, very helpful. Uh, But here's my question. I know there's um, research about uh, meditation for kids and benefits for children. What about for older adults? Is there any specific um, research or information about that and the benefits as people get older? How can it help people who might be very set in their ways? Uh, I uh, would love an answer. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for that. I really appreciate it. That's a great question. I wish I had encyclopedic knowledge of all of the research on older folks and meditation. Um, I do know that has been shown to be helpful with age-related cognitive decline. And there's some thinking, which at this point is still speculative, uh, as far as I know, uh, that there may be, it may be useful in staving off dementia, even Alzheimer's. Um, I wish I knew more about that angle because it's really interesting to contemplate. Um, But as far as I know, at this point, there is nothing uh, dispositive, nothing uh, set in stone. Uh, but the early indications are that it's good for the aging brain, and it's good for any brain. Well, all of our brains are aging. Um, so uh, I, I think it's never too late to start. And I think what what we can say with some real confidence is that what the science is showing us is that the brain is plastic. In other words, that the brain is uh, can change. The, the the received dogma for decades in the neuroscience community was that the brain stopped changing and and I at some age I think in the mid twenties but actually what we know is that the brain is trainable all 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 along and uh, all the way up through the ages so if you start in your sixties seventies eighties whatever I believe and I think the science suggests that it can have a salutary effect. Um, and this idea, you know, this idea of being set in your ways, I think the, the I talk about this all the time, but it just bears repeating that the reason I'm so excited about meditation, the reason why I'm out here doing what I do is, um, aside that it, aside from the fact that it raises a few extra dollars for my kids' college fund, is is that this assumption we have that we are the way we are and that we can never really change the science contradicts that notion that that all of the things we want the most patience calm gratitude generosity compassion self-awareness these are skills 
And unlike physical exercise, where you are subject to the laws of physics, when it comes to the brain and the mind, obviously when it comes to the brain and the mind, there are some, you know, the, the brain does decay over time. But really, the laws of physics don't apply in the same way. And so if, as I often say, if you can get 10% happier, what's the ceiling? So a long way of saying, sorry, short on specifics, but a long way of saying, I really, I truly do believe that meditation is um, is good for for the aging brain and mind um, and and that it is not too late to change. Second voicemail. Hi, Dan. This is Nancy from Genoa, Nevada. I don't like to sit up when I meditate. I love the fetal position, and it works really well for me. I'm wondering, I get the feeling that there's something wrong with that, that one must sit up and put the feet on the floor and the hands in the lap, and I see no purpose. That makes me very nervous. I hope you can answer this. Thanks. Bye-bye. I hope I can, too. Let me issue the caveat that I should have issued at the beginning, which is that I'm not a meditation teacher. I'm not a neuroscientist either, So, uh, and nor am I a mental health expert. So it's possible that I will make mistakes in these answers, um, and they are just one guy's opinion. And I haven't heard the phone calls in advance, so I'm, I'm, I'm uh, doing my best in the moment. Um, but that's a, that is a, a really uh, great question, and I feel like I do have an answer. First of all, Nobody says you have to be sitting up. In fact, dating back to the Buddha himself, there were four classical postures for meditation. One is the one that we see all the time in the in the traditional art depicting meditation. That is sitting up either in a chair or with your legs crossed, which I can't do, um, hands in the lap, et cetera, et cetera. The other is standing, stock still. People can stand and meditate. I do this a lot when I um, I'm really really tired and I don't want to fall asleep. Uh, another thing I do when I'm really really tired um, and don't want to fall asleep is walking meditation, formal walking meditation, which isn't taking a stroll. It is not as um, my meditation teacher Joseph Goldstein has said, recess. It's a sort of a <laughs> kind of a strange uh, uh, practice where you sort of walk back and forth in a in a a small space um, very, very slowly, and you pay careful attention to the physical sensations of of the movement, and then when you get distracted, you start again. So there are three postures, um, sitting, standing, walking, and then the fourth is lying down. Uh, Generally, as I've seen it depicted, lying meditation is not in the fetal position. Uh, It is more sort of on your back. Um, But I see no problem with lying on your side. And fr- frankly, as I'm going to sleep every night, I lie on, on my side in the fetal position and meditate. Uh, often I, and I've talked about this in the podcast before, often I do this, well, I'll do one of two kinds of meditation. Uh, one is uh, this kind of this thing I made up that, it, although I later read that it, it actually there's some legitimacy to this practice, which is just running through in my head everything I'm grateful for. Sounds ridiculously sappy, but as, as I find incredibly helpful because the, we are really good at taking things for granted. Um, and often I fall asleep in the middle of that. It just kind of puts you into a place that's much more relaxed. 
the other thing I do is uh, a practice called loving kindness meditation, even sappier than uh, gratitude. And I, I can't believe I'm the type of person who does this, but but again, there's science that suggests it's really good for you. Loving kindness meditation, which we've talked about on the podcast a million times, but it bears repeating, is this practice where you systematically sort of envision people uh, like um, a benefactor, yourself, uh, somebody you're uh, a really good friend, a neutral person, somebody you're having difficulty with, and then all beings. And you repeat these phrases silently in your head, like, may you be happy, may you be healthy, et cetera, et cetera. So you're kind of systematically sending good vibes to people. Um, this practice, again, called loving kindness, we need to come up with a better phrase for this. Some, a friend of mine, uh, Jeff Warren, has called it um, friendliness practice. Uh, it's just a way to train the mind to have a more congenial attitude toward uh, your uh, fellow uh, living beings. Um, and again, science suggests that it can make you um, healthier and that it can may, maybe even change behavior. So uh, I do this in the fetal position, and I find that it's a great way to fall asleep. It's a great way to, to continue your practice up until the last waking moments of every day. So I give you permission to practice meditation in the fetal position. There may be meditation teachers who know way more than me, because again, I'm not a teacher, who would disagree with me, but I suspect not. I mean, the mind is the mind, no matter what position you're in. Um, and if you're training it in the right direction, uh, again, toward uh, things like compassion or focus or uh, self-awareness slash mindfulness, if you're training it in the right direction, I'm not a big believer that the position is hugely important. There are schools, of course, the Zen school comes to mind, where there really is a, a big emphasis on um, the posture um, but there are disagreements in the meditation world, and so I'm taking a stand in, in a in a in a different uh, in a different position, which is the fetal position. I'm pro fetal position. All right, I didn't even know I felt that way until I gave that rant, but I do feel that way. I did talk there about loving kindness meditation and compassion, and that brings us right to our guest this week. Um, he's actually a, a rare repeat guest. His name is Dr. Thubten Jinpa. He is, um, I guess, is publicly best known as the primary English translator for His Holiness the Dalai Lama. So when you speak, when you see the Dalai Lama giving speeches, uh, the guy uh, who's with him uh, is Thubten Jinpa, who's uh, a Tibetan himself, um, uh, grew up in um, uh, India. His parents were Tibetan refugees. He... Uh, has a, quite an amazing story, which if you want to hear his backstory, I recommend you go back and listen to his first uh, appearance on the show. This is a very different appearance, though. Uh, I was invited by the Asia Society, which is a great organization uh, here in Manhattan, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, asiasociety.org, if you want to go check it out. They have all sorts of great events. Uh, my friend Tom Nagorski over there invited me to do an event um, after my last book came out, and I uh, asked Thubton if he would come down from Canada, he lives in Canada, to do it with me. And we did the whole event about uh, the issue of compassion. I've famously been come somewhat skeptical about compassion, both because I feel like it, I've, I've sometimes worried that it might make you soft. Uh, also, I don't like overt sentimentality. So uh, we go into all of that. And as I mentioned earlier, it was taped a day after the shooting in Parkland. So it, it had some added, added poignancy because of that. So my thanks to the Asia Society uh, and my thanks to Thubten Jinpa. And uh, here we go. 
From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Good to see all of you. Thanks for coming out tonight. Let me admit from the outset, this is a massive bait and switch because the sign says uh, the miracle of mindfulness meditation, but I'm actually going to talk about a different kind of meditation. We probably will get to mindfulness, but we have with us one of the world's premier experts in, uh, in compassion and, and who's been uh, teaching it in a secular format in, co- in conjunction with Stanford University. So I have a lot of questions for you about this. And, you know, just by way of background, mindfulness is what gets talked about all the time these days, mindfulness meditation, and I think that's a great thing. But it, it, the focus on mindfulness is to overlook that um, traditionally mindfulness meditation with, was taught in conjunction with something called compassion meditation, sometimes referred to with um, one of the most syrupy terms that you can imagine as loving-kindness meditation, which I sometimes describe as um, Valentine's Day with a knife to your throat. Um, <laughs> it essentially involves envisioning people and animals systematically and sending them good vibes. The expert will describe it in a more technical term. Um, but this is, uh, I, I, as a avowed anti, anti, anti-sentimentalist, um, I really, I kind of reflexively rejected compassion or loving-kindness meditation when I first started to get into meditation because it sounded so saccharine. But there's a significant amount of science that suggests that it's really good for you. Um, and some science that suggests, and we'll get into this because it's a little controversial, but some science that seems to suggest that it might change behavior, although that's controversial. Moreover, uh, uh, once I started to do it, I found that in my own personal experience that it does make a difference. So I think that uh, while the focus on mindfulness has been incredibly healthy in our society, just a, such a positive development, I think this this piece has been overlooked, and I, I'm, I, think, I sense an opening here. Um, anyway, all that being said, let me let you do some talking. Uh, we sit here the day after yet another school shooting, this one in Florida. Do you think compassion meditation, compassion training, and you're in the business of this, you have, again, as I, as I referenced before, this, uh, this secularized protocol for teaching compassion uh, that you uh, came up with uh, alongside Stanford University, taught all over the world, as I understand it. Do you think teaching compassion meditation could help prevent events like this? Or is it just like the weather that, you know, once in a while, somebody who's just mentally ill gets a hold of a lethal weapon and this kind of thing is going to happen? Thank you. First, um, I would like to... um, express my um, joy for being able to have another conversation with you. The podcast that I did in your studio, I really enjoyed it, and I felt the conversation was very meaningful, and, um, and I would like to thank uh, Asia Society for putting this event. Um, See how nice he is? I didn't even say thank you to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes, um, the tragedy of Florida uh, school shooting is right now on the top of everybody's mind um, is as 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 a parent, um, it's just too painful to even read about it. Um, so it's 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 really difficult. I mean, for example, things like teaching compassion, uh, teaching meditation, or mindfulness. These are 
long-term strategies. So it's very difficult to make the immediate connection and say, here's a solution, do this, and nothing like that would happen. That would be naive. Um, um, But one thing that perhaps taking compassion more seriously can do is to allow the people within important sectors like school system uh, to pay a bit more attention to the individual's differences and pay more attention to those who are struggling. So clearly the person uh, who did the shooting had a difficult... Of course, it's not to excuse what the horrible thing that he did, but the warning signs were there. So if... If the compassion is larger part of the society's value and is something that is made explicit, then one thing about making our value explicit is that it sets a bar. And people who are part of that community know that they are expected to behave in a particular way. So those are ways in which something like taking compassion seriously can help. But it would be naive to say teaching compassion and teaching meditation would have prevented it. And because part of that has to do with the, the, the reality of the complicated American relationship with guns. You know, uh, human beings are very complex creatures. Uh, they will always be people with difficulties. And we are all, each one of us, carry the seed for frustration, for anger, for hatred, for jealousy, you know, you know, I've been a monk for over 25 years in my life. To this day, I know my own limitations. I know I can get angry. I know I can get jealous. I know I can get frustrated. I know I can get resentful. So which suggests that these tendencies are very deeply rooted. But the difference is those, one would hope, those who have paid a bit more attention to the way their mind works are not going to act them out are not going to, you know, going to allow the mind to go crazy because the mind has a tendency to, to the spin by itself. And with the mindfulness, you, ideally one can catch it early so that you don't go too far into this crazy energy of the mind itself. So those kind of things, um, that's why I'm, I really believe that teaching like social-emotional learning, not just meditation, social-emotional learning, teaching children to be more... <laughs> aware of their own emotions, recognizing that they are frustrated, recognizing that they are dysregulated, being able to teach them even a simple technique of taking a breath, step, and breathing, that makes a huge difference. Those kind of things will make a difference because these kind of things will allow children to have an ability to exercise that restraint. So I think it's a much more complex um, question and... um, you know, when something like that happens, there's nothing you can do other than to feel sad and express your share in the pain of, of the victims. And also, you know, I, you know, I'm not an American, so it's difficult for me to make comments on American culture. But on the other hand, you know, I live, I'm a Canadian, I live next to a neighbor. I can't help but make comparisons. I mean, the culture is very much the same. We share the same language. How come things like this happen here and not there. So that has to do with some reality of a distinct American culture where 
you know, someone like this 19-year-old man can get an assault weapon and buy it legally. So those things are very complex questions, and my hope is that, you know, especially if you're writing a book, you know, you write really well, and you write for the person on the street, and you talk, you're able to speak their language and get really pull them from their heart and challenge them. I think compassion is a discourse that needs to be had now. Because until recently, a large part of the discourse on compassion has been relegated to the religion. And we know that religion's ability to influence public discourse is less and less strong. I want to... Now everybody can see why I wanted to talk to Professor Jimpa, um, because you speak so well. Um, let me get you to think about, I know you're from Canada, sometimes referred to as America's hat. Um, <laughs> but looking as I'm sure you well, do. Talking about which I remember one, sorry to interrupt. No, please. Once I was at a friend's place in America, and uh, she's an academic. And she, on her fridge, there was a, a, a map. It's one, it was one of those maps which had the landmarks in three-dimensional kind of slightly protruding. And it was about, it was an American map, but the upper part was all in ice, and that was Canada. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always remember there was a great Onion headline from back in the day, long time ago, and the headline was, Perky, quote-unquote, Canada has own government, comma, laws. <laughs> um, Anyway, that is the that is to distill the distorted view of among Americans of Canada's, in my view, undisputed greatness. Not to say it's one is greater than the other, but sure. Canada too sure. is a great country. Um, uh, lest I get myself in trouble. Um, <laughs> you look at America's political scene. I'm sure pretty much everything you look at is refracted through the lens of compassion, given your training and and given your work. What role would either compassion training as you teach it or, as you said before, just the simple notion of taking compassion seriously? What role could either of these play, given the howling sea of toxicity that is our current political scene? Um, But the, 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 the paradox of compassion is that it is one value that is claimed by people on both sides of political spectrum. Um, so the, at least in principle, there is a promise in the idea of compassion as prov- providing a basis on which people from different political backgrounds and ideology can come together. Um, of course, one of the things in America uh, and and you know, generally in the West, and particularly in America, uh, is um, the perceived conflict between societal values on the one hand and the sanctity of the individual freedom. And this is a very kind of Anglo-American kind of struggle. And here, therefore, if we look at the cultural values that are discussed often in the media, especially in the public discourse, and the public discourse tends to be about secular ideas. The values are almost exclusively defined from an individual perspective, you know, sanctity of the individual rights, sanctity of the private property, you know, choice, 
if you look at each of the values that we in liberal democratic society value, they're actually defined from individual's perspective. There's hardly any that is defined from a communal, social, societal perspective. And this is something that I would really like to see, and I hope you will take that challenge in your book. How can we develop a discourse where we are able to develop a robust discourse on a value like compassion without somehow being seen as wishy-washy or bringing religion through the back door or something like that. But somehow, because if you, the, the irony is that if you ask individually, most of us would say, yeah, I value compassion. And most of us will probably believe that I'm kind of a kind person. So which suggests that actually at the individual level, all of us value it, but somehow we haven't learned to develop a public discourse where we can really talk about compassion in a serious way. So I think in the political discourse, the more we're able to bring it, the chances are there will be more common ground to get. But I feel like the word almost has been ground down into meaninglessness through overuse. Partly that, but partly also it has a baggage that is tied to religion. True. Yeah, yeah. But I, mean, I feel because, like it's the religion, religious people who have been overusing it. Yes, but on, on, part of the problem is up until now or until recently... Does uh, anybody com- even know what compassion means? I mean, I know you do. But no, I think most that. people, I mean, most people, I would argue, will know. For example, most people will know compassion has something to do with someone who is suffering. Compassion has to do with someone who is in need. Compassion has to do with reaching out. Compassion has to do with feeling for. I think most people kind of know what it is. I mean, they may not be able to articulate in a way that is clear and, you know, sort of defined. But I think at a gut level, it's a bit like, you know, we may not be able to define what happiness is, but most of us kind of know what happiness is because we know when we get it. <laughs> we may not be able to articulate and define it. We kind of know when we're but happy. Can I jump for a second? Because sure. I actually think people don't know what happiness is. I think people confuse happiness with excitement. They think when you get what you want, you're happy. But, of course, that is absolutely ephemeral. It's true. And so that is the opposite of what I would view as happiness as an abiding peace of mind. Or a sense of satisfaction. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, a sense of fulfillment. Yeah, meaning. connection, yes. et, cetera, sure. et cetera. Sure, sure. But I mean, even these individuals who tend to define happiness primarily in sensory terms or sensory gratification terms, when they get that deeper sense of experience, they will know what it yes. is. Yes, yes. So the seed is there. I mean, Except the, the confusion about what makes people happy in turn, makes people do a lot of stupid stuff. Yes, yes. I mean, this is one thing about, you know, human beings. We, we don't really learn from other people's experience. We have to make the mistakes ourselves. Yeah, it's... Um... So, so what would you say... So you, you talked about it from a macro level, compassion from a macro level, but what about for those of us who live in this country and may find ourselves on one side? How can we take compassion seriously in a way that would make us better citizens and less crazy and distraught every time we turn on the news? I think one important insight that comes from Buddhism, um, which I think is very helpful in this kind of conversation, is that the the argument that 
compassion and instinct for kindness is a very fundamental part of who you are. And when you are able to express that, you actually feel gratified. You actually feel happy. You actually feel a sense of purpose. And we all know that even whether it is at our workplace or at home, when we are needed, when we are useful, we feel kind of valued. So this is a very fundamental need that the humans have. Yeah, you in your book, A Fearless Heart, you talk about the helper's high. Exactly. I yeah. actually have a chapter in my first book called The Self-Interested Case for Not Being a Word that Starts with a D and Ends with a K. Um, <laughs> and I think it's true. that, that My instinct it's is true. that to talk about compassion as a, from a selfish standpoint is, is the way to go. Exactly. And that's actually what His Holiness promotes. That's, that, yeah. Yes, right. And he says that if you want to be a wise, selfish, compassion is the way to go. Mm-hmm. And it's a kind of almost paradoxical. And, you know, sometimes some other people have said, you know, how can Dalai Lama say that it's good to be selfish? And I'm, my argument is, explanation is that he's not advocating selfishness, but he's saying that since pursuit of self-interest is an important the drive that all of us have anyway, then he's making the case that if you take that seriously, then be compassionate. So the point I was trying to make is that since we have that within us, the more we are able to leave, live from that place, the more we are able to view others from that place, the more we are able to view ourselves from that place, our own life becomes more meaningful, more joyful. So that is the self-interest argument. You know, the, the paradox is, in an ideal world, you don't want to be doing compassionate because it's good for you. Because... In actual act of compassion, the focus is really the other. You know, whether it is trying to help your kid or whether it's trying to help a poor person or whether you're trying to help an elderly trying to cross the street. can't both be true simultaneously? Uh, Well, in an actual act of kindness, the conscious motivation is going to be about the other. Yes, but having, transcending your own narrow self-interest is pleasing in and of itself. Exactly, yeah. And, that, that's, and that's not a contradiction. You know, it's, it's basically when we act out of kindness towards a fellow human being, we feel a sense of connection. You know, I mean, at the core of the feeling of compassion is an identification. That's why compassion is very different from pity. Pity tends to look down. You put yourself in a superior place. Whereas compassion tends to be, you know, more respectful because you are identifying with the other person. So when you're able to do that, you feel kind of, in some sense, you feel enhanced. You feel kind of expanded. So it is good for you. But in the actual act, from a psychology point of view, the conscious psychology will be really about the other. So back to our political scene. Say I'm I'm pro-Trump, and uh, people who love Hillary Clinton drive me crazy. How could compassion be useful for me? I think, I mean, compassion will force you to at least, you know, make you try to move beyond the surface of the differences and try to understand why certain person holds such an opposite point of view so strongly and so deeply. Why are they doing this? And the moment you ask that question, why, 
then you are able to connect. Because at the, at the, at the basic level, even though two people may be holding a completely different political opinion on a given topic, the reason why they are holding those views, if you start digging deep, they may be the same. You know, they, have, you know, they happen to have a different conception of how society should be structured, how to get there. And the differences are really about the method and the means, not about what. So that allows you, and, and if nothing else, it prevents you from being hateful. And that is a gift in itself, because, because you don't really want to go through the route of hating someone. There's a great expression from the Buddha that, that anger has uh, a honeyed tip. In other words, it feels good, a honeyed tip, but a poison root. Yes. And so it can feel, there can be a little bit of dopamine associated with, yeah. you know, sending a mean tweet or whatever. Um, but actually, in my experience, it feels better not to be carrying around a backpack full yeah. of hate yeah, all the time. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 uh, it's tiring. Yes. Yeah, it's basically, it's tiring, yeah. Um, so let me ask you about this. Uh, there was this meta-analysis, uh, a, a, a journal article, a, a scientific journal article recently, and they looked at a lot of studies of meditation, not just compassion meditation, but mindfulness meditation. And, uh, well, you'll tell me what they concluded because you know the study better than me, but I saw all the headlines. I'm going to pull out because the, <laughs> the headlines were amazing. Um, essentially, one of them was meditation does not make you a better person. Um, and there are tons of headlines about, uh, about the, how meditation basically is complete baloney because it's, it's going to not make you a better person in any way. Is this study onto something uh, or is there a problem here? No, no, I think the study is a very important one, actually. It's a meta-analysis. It's a very, very recent study. Uh, and also it's very timely uh, because there's, um, there's a kind of a hype right now. And sometimes the people who are advocates of meditation sometimes give the impression that this is the panacea. That, um, and in fact, at the beginning of that study, uh, I was surprised to see there was a quote attributed to the His Holiness saying that if each... You know, if every child learns to meditate at the age of eight, in a generation, there will be no violence. I mean, His Holiness is not that naive. I don't know how that quote got attributed to him. So that was that. Well, you translate for him, so... Um. <laughs> so but I think the, the, the point about that article, uh, I think is... This is one thing about Western consumerist society. When something works... Okay, people then latch on to it. And then they, everybody sort of jumps the bandwagon, and then they start believing almost like a kind of a, well, we call it miracle of mindful meditation. <laughs> so they, you know, people close their eyes and then expect there is some kind of miracle going to happen. So, uh, so there is that danger. But if you look at the traditional, for example, Buddhist understanding, uh, which is one tradition from where meditation practice came from, but it turns out that even in the Western tradition, there was in the Greek Orthodox Church, there, is a, there used to be a strong meditation tradition. Um, the Catholics it, have centering Catholics, prayers. Yeah, centering pairs and so on. So if you look at the Buddhist tradition, really transformation isn't really seen as just a function of meditation. It really is seen as a function of combining a couple of things. One is knowledge. You know, which um, 
this concept of mind-changing mindset, that is an important part of the Buddhist kind of, you know, idea of one factor for transformation. You need, to re- you need to learn to see the world and yourself in a different way. So knowledge is an important part of it. The other one is intention. You need to somehow prime your, you know, kind of, you know, in- instincts, prime your behavior in a way that you would want it to be. So there's a conscious intention setting that remembering yourself, the value of compassion, on a daily basis, you know, what you value and how you want to live your day. So the Tibetan Buddhists set their intention every morning so that it becomes a sort of, it sets the tone for the day. So conscious intention setting is another important point. And the third one is, of course, meditation. And meditation, in the, the way in which it's understood in the tradition, is not just a process by which you calm your mind, which is one part of it, and being aware and being staying in this present. But meditation also has another function, which is a process by which you internalize this new way of seeing things so that it gets processed. So the transformation of your behavior, which is where you want to see the results, is really seen as a function of combining these three things, Knowledge on the one side, new way of understanding things, internalization of that through meditation, and learning to regulate your own negative emotional reactions, and then setting your intentions consciously so that you, on a daily basis, make connection with your day-to-day activity and the values that you hold dear. And that's how transformations can take place. So that's why in the Cambridge, uh, not Cambridge, the Stanford Compassion Training, which we now offer through a non-profit organization called Compassion Institute, uh, intention setting is an important part of it. And also having some understanding of the psychology, basic psychology of the human mind is an important part. Have you studied whether your program changes behavior? Well, uh, there was, you know, in in the study that was uh, uh, the meta-analysis, one of the papers that came out of our program was listed there. Uh, but it is, I think it's too early to now look at it. So it's, you know, the, the basic point that the meditation alone does not alter behavior, I think it's a, it's, I think it's a, it's a fair point. But the, even the authors weren't sure, they, they didn't say meditation alone doesn't alter behavior. They basically said the studies themselves are just not designed well enough. Yeah. It's a problem yeah. with the yes. methodology. Exactly. And And they were... You know, I mean, the, the one important point they were making was that um, um, mindfulness and compassion meditation do seem to enhance on two pro-social emotions, compassion and empathy, but the effects on prejudice and uh, connectedness and aggression was almost non-existent. So that was an interesting thing, because in, if, if that pans out, it raises a powerful challenge because one would hope through compassion meditation, you know, the feeling of connectedness with people of a different background would increase because a key part of compassion meditation is the reinforcement of the recognition of common humanity. So does just it, like me. What you know, does it does it does this give you any does this create any doubt in your mind about whether what you're teaching works? No, I think it's too early. I mean, right now, many of the meditation research is uh, pretty crude. I mean, it's, more, it's pre and post, and many of them don't have active, um, you know, control 
uh, comparison. Can you explain that? Because I'm not sure. Pre and well, post. Um, pre and post is basically you uh, test the people before intervention is offered. Typically, there are eight-week programs, MBSR and Stanfield Compassion, uh, uh, Compassion Cultivation Training. These are eight-week programs. So you do some tests at the beginning. Then you offer the class, and at the end, you test. So some of these tests may have to do with uh, you know, whether it increases your attention or mindfulness or pro-sociality or empathy or you know, kind of uh, empathy across a different background. You know, for example, like the racial bias test is also being used to test that. So this is, but then a good study would actually have an active control group, which is a similar program, similarly structured, but it will be a different program that is offered. So these people will sign up for eight weeks or whatever it is, which involves something different, not the program itself. And then you would also have a waitlisted group who will get the program later, but they are signed in, but they are not given at the moment. So they're just waiting for the program so that there is an anticipation. So that might affect. So you, you then compare these three in the results, and if there is a significant statistical difference among the groups, then it is saying something. So right now, there are very few programs, research programs that do it because it's costly. So but it, sounds like to me, it sounds to me that you strongly suspect that what you're teaching does work and that for 2,600 years that people have been doing compassion meditation, it, has, it hasn't been a waste of time. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. So, but what about for me as somebody who's about to write a book about compassion? I, do I have to just say right up front, look, we have no evidence that this thing actually works? No, I don't think, I, mean, I think the... the I think the point is not about whether compassion meditation works. I think the point is how does it work and what needs to be combined with it. That's the problem. The point I'm trying to make is that sometimes people believe that the meditation is the panacea. If you close your your eyes and then sit there, something will happen. But what is more important, particularly 
unlike mindfulness for compassion type meditation, even when you close your eyes and meditate, if you're doing compassion meditation, you are actually doing relational exercise. Compassion is always about, even if it is towards yourself, it's a self-to-self relationship. So let me just put some meat on the bone there. So uh, just for people who aren't steeped in how to actually meditate, basic mindfulness meditation is usually sit, eyes closed, back reasonably straight, uh, bring your focus uh, to the feeling of your breath coming in and going out, and then every time you get distracted, start again and again and again and again. <laughs> Compassion meditation is a different, pretty different modality where you, same posture, but you are uh, envisioning, it's taught differently in different traditions, so I don't yeah. want to say too much about how you teach it because I don't know, but I know how it's taught in the tradition which I've been um, uh, studying, um, where you it, close your eyes and envision people. You usually start with yourself, and then you move to a benefactor, and then um, a close friend, and then a neutral person, somebody you see but overlook often, and then a difficult person, and then everyone. Uh, and in each case, you, send, you repeat silently in your mind a set of very sappy phrases like, may you be happy, may you be safe, etc., etc. And the idea is that just like in mindfulness meditation, where you're training your ability to focus and to not be carried away by your emotions so you can see clearly what's happening in your head without getting yanked around by it. So that's what's being trained in in straight-up mindfulness meditation. In compassion meditation, what you're training is your ability to care about other people, to feel connected to other people. And um, so anyway, I just want to... No, that's exactly... I mean, this basic pattern is similar. The point I'm trying to make is that even when you are meditating in compassion practice... It's about a relationship. So therefore, compassion, in order for the meditation to work, you actually need to act it out. So you need to, you know, as, a, as, a, as part of your compassion meditation practice, you then need to somehow practice it in your everyday life and seize the opportunity whenever an opportunity for kindness arises. So, so, so therefore this... And it, then it, there is a two-way influence, that your compassion meditation makes you more aware when opportunities arise, because you are consciously thinking of compassion, you are consciously connecting with compassion as part of your intention, you are explicitly making that as one of your most important personal values. So all of this makes makes it easier for compassion to be more pronounced in your mind. So when an opportunity arises, then you you express it, and that acting out reinforces your meditation. So it needs to be, you know, because the meditation alone is not going to work, because it's a simulation. Meditation, compassion meditation is a form of simulation. So in order for that simulation, even the pilots who train in simulation, at some point they have to the real thing and fly it, you know? So the same thing, the the effect of compassion meditation really has to come from doing it on a regular basis and starting with yourself, people around you, so that, you know, you are less reactive, you are less self-centered, you're more attentive, you're more caring, you're more magnanimous. (laughs) I think, I mean, this is where I think the intention is the key. Because if... I mean, I have the intention. I mean, the intention needs to be reinforced. That's the thing. 
Okay. You know, I have. Uh, I was going to talk to you later when we had dinner. That I have. I have an app that uh, I was involved in, and because I'm such a big believer in the conscious setting of your intentions, in the app we have an intention setting device. Um, so you choose up to five intentions, and then you set your timer for a reminder. And then, uh, for example, like one of the things that I ended up doing lately was, um, you know, at home after five thirty, around five thirty, I ended up liking looking for a glass of wine. And ideally, I wouldn't want to drink during the weekdays. And uh, but my wife is French Canadian, and my in-laws are they love wine and food and stuff. So, so I've got into the habit of kind of taking a glass of wine regularly, which some people say it's good for your health, but I don't really like it that much. So uh, after this app, I, that was my first intention, which says avoid drinking at home during weekdays. Come 5.30, it pings me, reminds me. So then I check whether I was successful or not, and then I track it across time. So this is how, and it works. Because what you are doing is instead of trying to suppress it by avoiding thinking about it, you are confronting it like in a mindfulness type approach. The Tibetan idea is that set your intention in the morning, yeah, and in the evening you quickly review it. No, I actually do this because I read your yeah. book, and so I yeah. do do what you suggest. And it makes a difference. I, yeah. I, 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 well, I, we'll have to give my wife. <laughs> <laughs> so the point is that one needs to have a bit more nuanced understanding of how meditation is supposed to work, especially like compassion meditation, because just closing your eyes and imagining is not going to do the trick. It needs to be reinforced by acting it out. And then one of the beauties of acting it out is that when you help someone, there's a joy that comes with it. And joy is what sustains your motivation because it makes you feel good. It enhances you. This is really important because I learned in my most recent book, um, so I wrote 10% Happier about four years ago, then I just wrote a book called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, and the goal of the second book was to get people to actually do the thing, and I had to learn a lot about behavior change science and uh, habit formation. And what I learned was that willpower, just saying you want to do something and gritting your teeth and aiming to do it, is a terrible strategy. And that fact, if you can tap into the mind's, to the brain's reward system, then actually you can create sustainable abiding habits because it becomes pleasurable to do. Definitely. So I've found that, that for me, being less of a jerk actually does feel good on the level of the mind in the moment you're doing it. Yes. Just take the moment of holding the door open for somebody. If you're paying attention, it feels reasonably good. That is, in my view, infinitely scalable. Definitely. Yeah, def- I think that this is one area where the new science of motivation is very uh, interesting because um, <clears throat> sometimes, and this is one area where sometimes religion really sort of shows its lack of understanding of human psychology because it tends to hammer and, and hammer and hammer and hammer and, it's, and people who don't do it are seen as somehow weak, weak-willed. And, and you're right. Uh, the science shows us that expecting too much from your strength of your will is not a long-lasting approach because it is exhausting. You know, if you rely too heavily on your will, uh, so therefore having a strategy, I mean, this is one of the reasons why, for example, the, you know, the many of the things 
that we learn from Buddhism actually were initially designed to help the monks. You know, Buddhism initially was a monastic religion. It was designed to help the monks how to live their daily life without too much effort, because there are so many precepts. So mindfulness practice, meta-awareness practice, these are all there so that the monks, and then they memorize all the precepts, so you don't... Precepts are the, basically yeah, the rules for being... Yeah, rules. Yeah. And then you live your life because you create a structure so that you don't rely just on the exertion of will all the time. So I think here the joy and sense of fulfillment is really key. I mean, it's, you can push with your will to initially get motivated, but to sustain it, will doesn't carry you there. So I, I suspect that some... I'm, I'm sure when we open up for Q&A, which we're going to do soon... Um, people are going to ask this, but I'll ask it first. Um, if you're compassionate, are you going to get plowed over by your nihilistically cruel boss? Uh, no. I, I, well, if you, com- if you act out of compassion in a wise way, that shouldn't happen. Because you should have the composure to be able to tell the boss at the right time that was not a nice thing to do. So I think it's important because uh, sometimes, you know, uh, and this is where the Buddhist tradition insists that compassion should be combined with wisdom. Because kindness alone is not the answer. Well, the, Buddhist, the Tibetans have an expression, idiot compassion. Yes, yeah. I mean, we could sometimes call it misplaced compassion, but right. idiot compassion is <laughs> probably a Go more... with the sect, go with the idiot. <laughs> Just from a so, branding perspective, uh, idiot is way So better. I think, you know, that being compassionate does not mean that you give in. But being compassionate requires you to... I mean, what it does require is to give the other person the benefit of the doubt, that you don't immediately rush to judgment. That's what we normally tend to do. So you don't immediately rush to judgment. You give the other person the benefit of the doubt. But on a closer look, if what the other person has done was not only mean, but actually done intentionally, then you do need to stand up. But you can do so without losing your composure, because you understand the reason why this person did it is that he or she is doing it from a place of pain. And given the choice, the person may not want to do it. But sometimes, because they're in a more powerful position, they tend not to see that what they're doing is not the right thing. One last question for me, and then I want to open it up. Uh, in, traditionally, in compassion meditation, and I don't know if this is true for how you teach it, but I think it is having read your book, that you usually start with, or somewhere along the way, sometimes you start with, or sometimes you build to, compassion for yourself. Yes. A lot of people really struggle with that. Uh, why is it so important? Um, I mean, this is, this is a very interesting question. Um, I, by the way, question, have no, actually. no problem with it. Yeah. <laughs> this is a very interesting question, actually. The first protocol that I developed when I was at Stanford used the traditional format. So we begin with self, we begin with a little bit of mindfulness type practice to settle your mind and basic men, meditation skills, then self, then a loved one, and then so on. 
But then the teacher who taught it to undergraduates, he and I sat down after he taught it twice, and he said many students were just struggling. They just get stuck there. So it turns out that in the West, self-compassion is for some strange reason a real challenge for many people. That somehow they just, even some people have aversive reaction to thinking about the offering phrases to yourself saying, may I be happy? You know, may I find peace? There's a kind of a aversive reaction even to thinking about that phrase directed to oneself. So, but my own feeling is that I don't think you need self-compassion to have compassion for others because I would argue compassion for others is a more fundamental human trait than for self because we are social creatures. You know, right from word get-go, we are always latching on to, you know, if a child is latching on to a mother. You know, there's a, there's a relationship is what defines us. So your perception of the other is probably more fundamental and relationship with others more fundamental. So I would argue compassion for others is probably more fundamental uh, um, impulse than for self. But to sustain compassion for a long time, long term, if you don't have a basic level of self-compassion, then you can't sustain compassion for too long because at some point you get burned out. And then not only that, worst thing is that as a result of not having enough self-compassion, you start resenting the people for whom you have given so much of your life, feeling that somehow they are the ones who made me suffer, they were ungrateful. Whereas if you have a degree of self-compassion, then it acts as a kind of a you know, buffer against that kind of exhaustion. So I would argue that in order to have sustained compassion for many other, others, you do need a fairly solid basis of self-compassion. Uh, let's open it up for questions. This is my, actually always my favorite part. Somebody right there, hands up. Oh, we'll work our way through. Yep. So the one word that hasn't been part of the discussion is ego. And in a lot of the readings that I've done and thinking that I've done about meditation, there's, there's the issue of the ego. And meditation actually allowing you to relax but also to tamp down the ego. And it strikes me that if you're in the middle of a lot of hectic activity and you take a break and you're meditating and then you get back to the hectic activity without there being some kind of change in the ego consciousness, then it's the equivalent of a four-year-old getting a timeout and becoming a four-year-old immediately again. And I would have to believe that if there is this other dimension of ego management, if you will, that over time it's cumulative and then the compassion component is more pronounced. So if you could maybe address that. Thank well, you. I'll let you answer the question, but I just will say as the father of a three-year-old, that often after the time out, my kid is actually much better. Uh, so anyway, but you can carry on. <laughs> I mean, he's an awful person, just that baseline. <laughs> clear. I have been telling the story recently about how I walked into the nursery uh, not long ago, and he was gleefully urinating on his nanny's leg. Um, <laughs> and he had this great, you know, he was really happy about it. And I looked at his face. I was like, oh, that's my face. 
that my, my co-anchor, Juju Chang, uh, one of my co-anchors on Nightline, says that she tells all of her friends, be careful who you sleep with because you'll end up raising him. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's a wise, a wise advice. I've had a few moments like this where I've asked the Dalai Lama a completely inappropriate question and I've had to watch him translate. <laughs> um, so to get, get to your question, um, I mean, ego is... Uh, quite a complicated term. Um, you know, there's a lot of baggage behind it because of uh, Freudian psychology and all these other... Uh, but the basic point that has to do with some sense of self-image, some sense of self. Um, and often a lot of people have problems because of that relationship, perception of themselves. And uh, I, you know, I sometimes, you know... I'm, because I sort of mix with many different kind of group settings. And sometimes you see individuals who are very well-meaning, kind-hearted, but then because they have this complicated relationship with their own sense of self, somehow this self comes in the way. And it's almost like they stumble on their own selves. And this is probably what you mean by the ego issue. Um, And... Here, one would hope that by meditating, at least at the basic level, one will become a bit more self-aware. Because in meditation, you are not only quietening your mind, you are in some sense taking a reflective standpoint. Because normally, if you don't meditate, we are constantly reacting to a situation. And we are just being taken by the, the tide or wave. Meditation allows you to take a step back, be reflective, take a stand, and observe. So you learn to, you know, kind of disengage and and learn to be an observer. And in this way, you begin to see certain patterns in the way you think, the way you, you know. And and many of our habitual thought patterns are formed quite early. Um, And it's difficult for us to see because they're such an important natural part of who we are. But by meditating, we begin to see those patterns and the quirky things that you, as an individual, do. So you become more reflective. And that's the idea that if you are really meditating, you know, whether it is mindfulness type practice or whether it is compassionate type practice, whatever it is, you know, all of these, these meditation practices require a quietening your mind at the beginning and taking that stance and standing back and, you know, giving yourself that space, I think then these ego issues will become more and more obvious to you. And then, you know, once it becomes more and more obvious to you, then you have a chance to handle them. Uh, Because at the bottom, all of us want to be nicer people, you know. All of us want to be more fun to be with. All of us want to be kinder. And sometimes our own quirky personalities and habits come in the way. And here, I think meditation can really help because one thing that, uh, particularly the modern mindfulness meditation, one amazing power of that is teaching individuals the skill to have this meta-awareness, to step back and observe what's happening in the theater of your mind. And that ability to step back and observe is a powerful skill 
Because, you know, and, and I would argue this is exactly the reason why mindfulness-based cognitive behavior therapy is proving to be quite effective in prevention of uh, relapse of depression because often relapse of depression is aggra- aggravated by ruminations. And ruminations are spiral thinking. You know, you start believing in the story that you tell yourselves, whereas mindfulness, if you meditate it, cultivated, it teaches you the skill to catch yourself and then step back, step back and say, well, this is just a thought. This is just a thought and observe it. And it immediately cuts that spiraling energy so that you don't get sucked into this. And that's the reason I would argue that's probably the, one of the main reasons why it's proven to be quite effective in preventing relapse, not so much treating, but preventing relapse of depression because it helps you deal with rumination. Yeah. Well, that makes sense to me. Um, any other questions? Gentleman in the second row here. Hi. Can you be truly compassionate without understanding suffering? I mean, in a way that you have to understand someone else suffering to be compassionate. And if so, how to do that in a society where we deny us suffering so much? Um, I think all of us... Um, know what suffering is. It doesn't really matter how successful you are, how famous you are, how rich you are, you know, how enlightened you are. It doesn't really matter. I think we all know what suffering is. You know, there's, this is one powerful insight of the Buddha. Suffering, the fact of suffering, the reality of suffering is part of what makes us human beings. And I would argue that actually the vulnerability to pain and sufferings is what makes us empathetic creatures. And the reason why when we see a total stranger bleeding and crying, we instinctively feel for this person because suffering is such a powerful connector. You know, we don't need to know all the ins and outs of the details of that particular person's situation. We know what it, you know, we know what suffering is. We know what pain is. We know what need is. So, I don't think we need to know the specificity of the situation. Of course, if you know more about it, the chances of being able to empathize deeper is there. But even without that, because otherwise it will be very difficult for a man to be having a compassion and empathy for a woman who is going through a certain painful experience that only women can go through. So the idea that somehow we cannot empathize with that just doesn't make any sense. But of course, you're right. If, uh, in some cases, when the suffering is not evident, and on top of that, when there are counter forces like prejudices and so on, based on differences of religion or some complicated history, then in those cases, then we need to make an effort to find that connection. Without finding that connection, we won't feel compassion. And, and in fact, what happens in, in a depersonalization and demonization of other group is exactly the opposite of what happens when you're able to connect with other group and feel empathy. If you disconnect, then, you know, in order to do horrific, you know, horrific things on other people, somehow we need to depersonalize that person first. We need to, you know... Um, you know, kind of objectify. First of all, objectify. 
and then in some cases demonize to justify what we are doing against that, those people. And this is what we see in history. So I, I, that's why I think advocating compassion across differences is really such an important point because it allows us the ability to find a common language of humanity. So compassion discourse can actually be the powerful antidote for discourse that divides us. Front row. Then I see, I see you behind. Hi. My question is actually the opposite of the question that was just asked. For those people who are in the business of caring for others, like nurses or doctors, people who are constantly in a position of providing that compassionate care, such term as compassion fatigue. So for those people, how do we maintain the level of compassion and without getting so burned out? Well, thank you. This is a very, very important question. And um, now the science is beginning to make distinctions between empathy and compassion and beginning to recognize, actually, even at the brain level, the expressions are a little different. And one of the, now it is a promise, in, in the compassion training program is some possibility of teaching individuals, particularly at the forefront of this kind of, you know, acute caregiving, the ability to not disconnect. Because sometimes doctors and and nurses, you know, as part of their self-protection mechanism, they learn to detach and they, they learn to depersonalize the patient so that they don't have to deal with the pain. And that turns out to be actually, in the long run, not a good strategy. It actually eats into you. Like the doctors yeah. in MASH making it, it, jokes. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. It turns out to be quite... Uh, and it turns out that this is one of the main causes for physicians' burnout, depersonalization of the patient. But on the other hand, if you're constantly exposed and if you're open, then how do you avoid the other extreme of just getting fit, <laughs> compassion fatigue? So here... Uh, uh, the Compassion Institute that um, you know uh, we have recently s- established to take on this work of uh, um, you know propagating this compassion training. Um, we are in the middle of a, a collaboration program with a couple of hospitals and some doctors on developing a special module to deal with physician burnout, so that they can be taught certain skills. And the idea being that you can be empathetic but not get stuck in empathy, to move on to compassion. And the distinction between empathy and compassion is that empathy is more emotional, you're resonating, you're feeling for, and so the focus is really the problem. When you are able to move to compassion, then the focus also becomes the solution. What can I do? It's a more empowered state of mind. So because it also has... An, in, in, the, in the, the scientific uh, research, particularly Tanya Singer at, um, um, in, in, in Germany, she has done a lot of these work, and uh, it turns out when people are asked to move from empathy to compassion, in the motor regions, pre-motor area, which are connected with you know, acting out, gets more active. So there seems to be a more proactive... So those, and these are very early days, but hopefully, um, I mean, we, we have a quite an ambitious uh, plan right now at, at the Compassion Institute, working with some hospitals. So hopefully something like this will come out.
Thank you. Sir. Thank you. I mean, at the end of the day, all meditative forms want the more developed part of our brain, the neocortex, to influence the more primitive parts of our brain. The problem with the discussion and the studies suggested is that things like motivation and attention is in a relatively developed part of the brain. Things like compassion and dopamine surge around the feel-good is also quasi-developed, but hate, prejudice, that's in the most reptilian part of our brain and the most difficult to control. So shouldn't meditation not be one size fits all, but more directed to the neurosciences that we do know? That's a, that's a very, very good question. Um, I would actually take issue with the idea that um, you know, emotions like hate and ang- aggression and anger are more fundamental than emotions like kindness and compassion. I would take issue with that. Um, because even from a scientific point of view, we are biological and social creatures. And social creatures and biology evolved in such a way that we, there's a mechanism built in us to sustain that relationship and to nurture it. So I mean, this is one of the tragedy of modern science narrative. Modern science narrative has focused so much on the aggression and the competitive part of the narrative of the human evolution but it, and, and competition but it completely disregarded until recently. Now it's changing the other side of the story, which is you know, our nurturing impulse, you know, our caring impulse, and the evolution of cooperation. You know, it turns out that if you don't take into account this impulse for nurturing and connection, we can't explain evolution of human complex cooperation. So I will take issue that you know, I would argue that impulse for nurturing and connecting and craving for others' kind of you know, affection and love is as fundamental as other forces like aggression and hate. Now, attention and emotion regulation and those kind of things are, of course, has to do with prefrontal cortex. They are much later developed. But the more emotional kind of brain, including you know, empathy and compassion, I would argue are more fundamental. So, uh, and, and the point you are making about one size fits all is an important one. And, you know, sometimes there is a tendency in the mindfulness community to somehow suggest that this is the panacea for everybody. And sometimes some people would even want to argue that this is the essence of the Buddhist meditation and then the rest is all kind of rituals and cultural kind of things. And I have on several occasions said that that actually is not very helpful. It's one thing to say we have extracted something from the Buddhist techniques and secularized it because it's a universal skill. That's perfectly fine. But then to suggest that somehow this captures the essence of Buddhism is not a very helpful because, you know, Buddha, if you look at the meditation, for example, now we have the mindfulness practice, we have loving-kindness practice, we have now compassion practice. There's a whole suite of meditation practices in the Buddhist tradition. There's a whole approach in dealing with anger. You know, if you look at Shantideva's text, there's a whole chapter on this. So there are many different types of meditation in these resources. And in fact, the tradition says that 
you know, for example, according to the meditation theory in the Buddhist text, we identify six or seven main personality types. And depending on the personality type, it recommends certain types of meditation. So that's why I, you know, my point is that the meditation research now is still in a very early stage. You know, at the moment, we are looking at a very generalized understanding, and we haven't even gotten close to understanding the mechanism of how it is working. We do know that there are some effects, that it is helping X, Y, and Z. We do know, but we don't know how it works. We don't even know which one are the more active ingredients. We don't know to what extent the effects we are seeing as a result of this gentleness of the teacher who is giving the class. I mean, at this point, honestly, we don't really know. You and I come at the science from a slightly different standpoint. You come at it as somebody who's in, in, engaged in the scientific process. I come at it as a, as a for, I, I use this term a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but as an evangelist. You know, yes. I'm, I'm trying to introduce meditation to sure. large audiences. And what I like to tell people is, um, you know, the science is, you know, it's the, science has become the lingua franca in our it's culture, true. and it's true. really useful for me to talk about the science. Sure. But, you don't. You might start meditating because you think your prefrontal cortex will change, but you don't keep meditating because of that. I completely agree. Yeah. yeah. Um, we've got all sorts of questions here. Uh, why don't you start in the front, and then I see you up there. Yeah. You spoke a bit about uh, the West's relationship to self-compassion, and I wondered if you could. Uh, I, I think, I guess, especially in our society, that uh, self-compassion is seen in direct opposition to our society's ideas of um, pushing yourself or getting ahead. And so I wondered if you could talk a bit about, you know, your views on that thought process and also where that line of thinking might be incorrect. Um, I think at the heart of the problem of um, self-compassion for those who are struggling um, is... I think it's the problem, part of the problem really has to do with a sense of self-worth. You know, if your sense of self-worth is completely defined externally, then you have a problem. If you can define your sense of self-worth not just externally, as a good father, as a good parent, whatever it is, or as a successful person, but also internally as someone who is a human being and all the rest, then there seems to be less problems. So I think it has to do with sense of self-worth. And I think self, being self-kind, kind to yourself, really doesn't mean just slacken that leash. You know, it's, I don't think it means to be self-indulgent. Sometimes in the West, there is that tendency you know, to be self-kind, you should treat yourself, have a chocolate or kind of thing, you know. So it's, it's almost like infantilizing yourself. So I think the sense, a genuine self-kindness presupposes that you have a healthy attitude towards yourself and healthy self-image. And then also from that comes a healthy impulse towards you so that you treat yourself with kindness. And that should manifest particularly when you're going through a difficult time, when you have a failure, a disappointment. That's when it is so crucial so that you learn from that experience rather than beating yourself. Because when you beat yourself, 
then you become, you develop an aversive react, reaction to that kind of experience. And then every time you have a failure and disappointment, you, you completely lose your composure. You lose your bearing. So I think this is one area where self-kindness, being, you know, self-kindness involves being able to relate to yourself as a human being with all the, you know, complications and weaknesses and, you know, failings and so on, but at the same time, a human being who deserves happiness just like anybody else. And it's sort of a, it's, it's a more realistic sense of who you are. And, of course, His Holiness says that when you talk about competition, there's a positive kind of competition, which is motivated by not wanting to be left behind. Whereas the negative competition is you're willing to stample upon others to get on the top. So you would want to avoid that, but that doesn't mean you should not compete. You would want to compete because you want to bring the best out of you and you know, contribute the best that you are capable of. So I think being self-kind, you know, if, for example, if you look at someone like His Holiness, he's got a very healthy dose of self-compassion, but he's not laxed. You know, he's very hardworking. He's got a quite a high standard for himself. You know, he gets up at 3.30 every morning, does his thing. He's constantly interacting with others. Does his thing. It's yeah, three yeah. hours of meditation. Just meditation. <laughs> so he, he really, you know, so you can see that having a healthy dose of self-compassion does not mean that you are being soft on yourself. I think that's, this is where I think it's important to, to make that distinction. Sometimes... You know, because of this kind of, you know, um, that the, cult, the, the, the consumerist culture is very complicated. On the one hand, it's all about self-gratification, you know, if, and not just self-gratification, but the gratification right now. But on the other hand, we also, the culture in the West has this aversion towards thinking about yourself. Because probably that has to do with culture, background of you know Christian value system and all the rest of what I don't know what else it is. So this this creates a very complicated relationship with self. So and for someone like myself coming from outside and it, you know who's brought up in the Asian culture, seeing this paradox is interesting. It's very obvious. But if you're living, if you're part of that society, then it's not very obvious. And just as anthropologists are able to point out all the weird things about my own culture, but I don't see them because I'm part of it, you know. So in the West, too, I think, you know, this is where I think the self-compassion language and the message uh, is a serious one. And we need to somehow find a distinction between self-absorption and genuine self-compassion. Self-absorption is ultimately not a healthy thing. Uh, young woman right there with her hand up and if I miss you we're going to be signing books and if you buy several books I'll answer whatever question you want <laughs> um, uh, thank you I've appreciated very much the discussion about is meditation enough is mindfulness meditation enough is compassion meditation enough for um, really seeing change in behavior in particular um, and the thing that's been coming to mind for me as you've been speaking is about um, what's happening in uh, Myanmar around the um, violence against uh, Rohingya Muslims and in part incited by some uh, Buddhist monks. 
And so I'm wondering if you might comment on that and talk a little bit about what hope there is for the rest of us if Buddhist monks in an area that's steeped in Buddhist philosophy can still sort of, um, may still be engaging in, in behavior that's really more about us versus them rather than a collective experience. Just because you wear robes doesn't mean you meditate. Well, thank you for the uh, question. This, this is, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a very, very painful um, history right now. Um, what has happened to uh, almost a million um, Rohingyas, refugees stuck in uh, Bangladesh, and, uh, and also uh, how the majority of Burmese Buddhist community has responded to that situation and through denial and uh, not even using the term Rohingya to refer to the community, uh, all of this. I know this is a source of uh, great pain to His Holiness. Um, His Holiness wrote to Aung San Suu Kyi several times. Um, in fact, even before the major crisis began, when they was beginning to emerge, um, His Holiness met with Aung San Suu Kyi twice, and in both occasions, he brought this up and said he was, he's very worried that there is a real you know, uh, potential for explosion here and needs to be you know, um, addressed. But one thing that we learn from this Burmese uh, Buddhist you know, kind of majority attitude, um, Buddhist majority attitude towards what's happening to the Rohingyas, is a powerful truth about human beings. It doesn't really matter how beautiful a teaching is. The moment we use the label mine and ours, we have the ability to really make the you know, differentiation between us and them and turn even something like Buddhism into a vehicle, an instrument for oppression. So you know, we Buddhists would like to say that we have less things, skeletons in our closet in terms of history. Um, but the fact is, if it is a religion, it will get used. And religion tends to somehow tend to pull at a very deep level of identity and emotion for those who believe in them. And once you turn something like this into a basis of national identity and ethnic identity, then you know, you can justify anything in the name of protecting that. And this is what has been powerfully demonstrated. And Buddhism is, you know, cannot escape, no matter how beautiful the actual teaching itself is. You know, we humans, society can turn it into a weapon that will be used in a negative way. And unfortunately, that's what has happened. And um, I know that there is a movement on uh, Western Buddhist teachers um, who uh, collected signatures, uh, you know, Jack Confield was involved in this, and trying to somehow draw attention. And also, um, I think it was uh, Buddha Dasa, not Buddha Dasa, um, uh, one of the major teachers here, um, who in fact did a special compilation of all the teachings from the Buddhist sutras talking about the importance of you know, harmony in society and having compassion for the, you know, people other than your own tribe and all of this. Um, in compilation, these were translated back into uh, Burmese language and distributed. So there is an alternative uh, voice, too, 
although right now that voice doesn't seem to be strong enough to really kind of you know counter what seems to be the main position, and to what extent this is being instigated by the military itself, and the civilian government is just too terrified because they're worried that they might use it as an excuse to turn back the clock. To what extent that is what is causing the restraint, and to what extent the monastic silence um, is caused by fear, I'm not sure. Sure, it seems to be a very, very complicated and sad situation. And I think the Buddhist world should really speak up in 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 union, in a single voice, to say that not in Buddhism's name. That really has to be the point made. It's if you are talking about. Nationalism and ethnic division and ethnic differences, it's one thing. But you cannot use Buddhism as a basis and excuse for treating a whole community of people who are different as somehow justified by in the protection of the Dharma. That's ridiculous. So I think the Buddhist voices that matter needs to speak up. Thank you. Very well said. Thank you very much. Thank you. Great job, and uh, thank you to the Asia Society, and thank you for everybody you. for coming out tonight. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me DJ and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, 
Music Field Weekly Party, where hip hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcast. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. <laughs> <laughs>